Welcome back. My name is Jason Stephan Hagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota, and this is Deconstructing the Bible. I want to say a special thank you to Stephanie Spencer from 40 Orchards who joined me the last three weeks as we dove into Midrash and dancing and wrestling with the text. We looked at how Jesus asked questions. We looked at um, Luke chapter 10, Mark chapter 12, Deuteronomy 6, Genesis 32. We talked about Paul. We talked about Abraham. We talked about Solomon. We were all over the place and it was a great three weeks and I would highly recommend you checking that out if you haven't already. So Stephanie Spencer invites us to wrestle parts one, two, and three if you are looking for that conversation. Today, I want to do something a little different. I want to dive into some faith development theory. Faith development theory is basically the study of how our faith develops over the course of our lifetime. Now, every single one of us is different. There's no perfect roadmap for this. And there's lots of different faith development theories out there. I'm going to focus on one particular theory that has its holes and has its problems and has its critiques. But I think it's a helpful way to try to understand how our faith grows and develops over time. And the reason why we're talking about faith development is because one of the reasons our faith develops and grows is because we engage the Bible. And the way in which we engage it, the way we process what we are reading, the way that we try new lenses on when we are reading, when we listen to people talk about the Bible, it shapes what we think about it, and it shapes who we're becoming and how our understanding of the Bible shapes our faith, and that faith shapes who we are. So, understanding how faith development works will help us understand how we're engaging the Bible and how deconstruction fits into all of this. So, the way I love talking about faith development theory is by using a theorist by the name of James Fowler, who wrote a book called Stages of Faith. He wrote this back in 1980-81, my birth year, and he explored many people's faith journey in order to come up with these stages of faith. Now, he's basing his work off of Piaget and Erickson, developmental psychologists, and he is helping us understand how people grow through the different stages of their lifespan. And so we're going to start way back in childhood. And so between the ages of kind of two and six years old, Fowler calls this the intuitive projective phase of faith development. And I just want to call it the magic phase. And the magic phase is simply that everything is real to us when we're a little kid, before a concrete operational thought, right? And so we think that the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and, you know, if we've watched Star Wars by the time we're five years old, we think that Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader is real. I remember my son was scared to go in the basement for a number of years. Why? Because he watched Star Wars and he thought Darth Vader lived in our basement. And so everything was real. Everything was awesome. It's kind of like the Lego movie. And you just imagine it all. And so when we engage the Bible and we hear stories from the Bible at a young age, probably before we're reading, but we hear these stories about Jesus walking on water, Daniel surviving the lion's den. We hear about Jesus raising from the dead. And these are just magical, amazing stories. And because we're between the ages of two and six years old, we believe everything. And so when we read these stories, hear these stories, then when these stories are taught to us, we can't help but buy in. We can't help but but love them and fall in love with this text and with these stories. And so the Bible plays a significant role because it's teaching us the stories at a very young age. So we move through this stage by 
concrete operational thought kicks in and we move into what Fowler calls the mythic literal stage. Um, and I just like say, simplifying it down to the literal stage. And ultimately, if we can't see it, touch it, smell it, feel it, you know, take it in with our eyes, if we can't have our five senses register it, then it's really hard to believe in it. That's the phase that we're in when we're between like six and 12 years old. We want evidence, 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 evidence. We start to realize that hey, maybe Santa Claus isn't quite as real as I thought because there's really no way that a jolly old man is getting to all these houses in one night. Or we don't even have a chimney to get down, so that whole story doesn't seem to make sense. Or why do my parents insist that a fairy is replacing my tooth with money when I woke up and saw my parent doing it. That doesn't seem to make any sense. Plus, my parents are always vigilant about locking up the house and making sure nothing can get in. We talk about safety all the time, and yet here they are talking about something breaking and entering into our house, but it's returning money or giving money. It doesn't make any sense. And so how do you believe in some of these fantastical ideas that we held on to when we were children? And and that makes sense, right? We allow kids those fun, magical experiences. And then we also are understanding when they start to drop those. The problem is that we still have these amazing stories in the Bible, right? Stories of Daniel in the lion's den. We have Jonah getting swallowed by a whale. We have Jesus walking on water and rising from the dead. And yet we want to insist or to hold on to the truth of those stories, but yet we're letting the stories of the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and the tooth fairy go while holding on to the true stories that we find within scripture. And so it becomes a complicated mix of how do we talk to our kids about the Bible when they're in this very literal stage. Now, some of it seems very literal, like Jesus is trying to help people or explaining things to people. Jesus is dying on a cross. That makes sense. But the resurrection doesn't always make sense to kids. And so how do we talk about these things becomes really important as parents. Um, And for our own faith journey, What we've often done probably is we've asked a ton of questions and sometimes they get resolved and sometimes they don't. And when they don't get resolved, we tend to just look around us and see, well, who can I trust that seems to believe this? And that's where we move into this third stage, which is the synthetic conventional stage. I like to call it the external phase. The external phase, the external stage of faith development is where we have trusted people around us. We have friends, peers, we have parents, pastors, school systems, we have influencers on social media and other places that we go to, authors, right, that we listen to or read that help give us an understanding of what our faith should look like. And so, yeah, we could read it for ourselves, but I read the Bible, but I read it and the voice of my pastor comes through or the voice of my parent comes through. You know, we start to understand a little bit of theology enough to be dangerous, right? Enough to apply it to scripture, and which is really fun and really exciting. And so we start to read people, we start to listen, we start to engage, start to ask questions in youth group. And so between the age of like, you know, 10, 11, 12, all the way up through our teenage years, and even beyond our teenage years, we are really embracing what's been externally handed to us. And that's a really beautiful stage of faith because that's where we really develop and start to trust our community. And so we develop these great connections, these relationships, and we start to recognize the power of a healthy, dynamic community that's telling a beautiful story about how we engage God and how we engage community and how we engage the Bible. So the Bible starts to explain things, right? And so it can become an answer book or it can kind of become um, a text that we go to when we have a problem because we've been told that 
hey, the answers are in here. The, the God is trying to tell us something through the Bible. And so we go to the Bible and, and what jumps out to us is these beautiful explanations of things and these beautiful passages that resonate with what we're going through. And so the Bible becomes a support to the externally driven faith that we have. Now, there's a thing that happens in between stages three and four, and the reason why we have the potential to move to stage four, and, and here's the thing, not everybody does move to stage four because a lot of times people will have a wonderful external influence on who they are and their faith, and it becomes something that they just operate out of, and that's a really beautiful and can be a really healthy thing. Some of the most beautiful people that I've met have been people that have been deeply impacted by their pastors, their peers, their friends, their parents, the 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 church that shaped them, and they've not found a reason to go exploring any further. The curiosity might not always be there, and and that's okay because the type of person they are is really resonant with love and kindness and generosity and goodness and forgiveness and self-control, the fruit of the spirit. You know, there's a there's a complication in talking about faith development theory in this stage format because it's like we should all be going from one stage to the next. And if you don't get to stage five or stage six, then somehow you're a failure. And that's absolutely not true. Like, you know, Jesus doesn't say like, hey, if you don't advance to stage five of Fowler's faith development theory, which will be concocted in 1981, then you're not really a Christian. That's not that's not the case at all. These stages are just helping us understand our development of our faith, the growth of our faith. But it doesn't mean that who we are as a person and who we are in the world isn't dynamic and impactful and meaningful just because we might not be at a certain stage or we might not be at a certain place in our faith. All of it is just helping us understand who we are and how our faith is being formed. And so what happens in life is the inevitable pain and hardship of life. We have incongruencies. We have things that are disorienting or things that are uh, destabilizing of who we are. Somebody gets sick in our family. We have the loss of a loved one. We have someone who overdoses on drugs. We have an accident that happens. We meet someone whose story is just drastically different from ours, and we don't understand the world from which they're coming from, even though they're coming from the same world that we inhabit. We just don't understand the complexity of their life. Maybe we go to another country and we see the way that they operate and the way that they live, and it forces us into asking all kinds of questions about the Bible or asking questions about faith. You know, maybe we see a different level of economic status, and that can't help but force us into a disequilibrium, an incongruence with how the world operates. And so we start asking questions about what we think and what we feel and who we are in the world. The disequilibrium gets so much, it kind of forces us into a decision. It forces us to decide who we're going to be. And for some people, it's, I want to get back to what I've always known. I want to get back to that externally driven faith that had good answers. I want to hunker down into what what has been really safe and healthy for me, and I'm going to make sure to to reemphasize those things. Sometimes when we hear an influence or we have an experience, we change our, our loyalty. So for instance, this can happen a lot when students go to a college. They have their friends back home, they have their parents back home, they have their pastors back home, but now they go to a college and they have a new set of friends, they have a new set of educators, maybe they have a new pastor, and maybe they have other adult influences in their life who are playing a significant role in how they shape and think about the world. And that's not bad. It's, it can actually be really healthy. But sometimes what happens is that we think we're growing in a dynamic way, but really we're just reaffirming a different set of external influences, right? We go from the ones back home 
to the ones in this new location. And so we, we are, we're thinking different thoughts and maybe we're even believing slightly different things. Maybe our theology has changed. Maybe our way of in reading the Bible has changed. But ultimately, we're still very driven by the externals because we're embracing the thoughts of others. It's just different from who we grew up with. And that's not the end of the world. That, that can be a healthy movement and growth that we see in a person is being able to absorb new information and new people. But ultimately, the hope of this transition phase is that it moves us towards a sense of ownership. And that's stage four. It's the individuative reflective stage. It's, and I like to call it the, the stage of ownership. Where we really start to take ownership of what we believe. It starts to become our faith. It starts to become something we believe. So when someone asks us a question about our faith, we don't just simply say, oh, well, my pastor once told me or my mom, you know, taught me to believe or my friends think it's no this is what i think this is how i've engaged this is what what i believe and so we dive into this kind of ownership of of what we think and what we believe and it's because we've been asked to wrestle with hard things we've been asked to engage difficult situations we've been asked to um process theology maybe in a different way or a different way of reading the bible and so one of the things i always encourage students to do is hey, what does it look like to read the Bible with a different set of lenses, right? And so sometimes we, we read the Bible and maybe we grew up with hearing about judgment, like judgment, judgment, judgment. Well, what if you read the Bible with the lenses of generosity? What if you read the Bible with the lens of, of, of goodness, right? That there's always goodness and God is trying to instill the sense that humans are good, good, good. We're made to be good. And so instead of it being a triumph over the evils of humanity. It's a getting back to the goodness of humanity. And how would we read the Bible differently if we read it with a different set of lenses? And that's not a bad thing. That can be a really beautiful thing as we try to understand how we engage the Bible. And so engaging the Bible plays a role in each of these first four stages. We start to see the ways in which the Bible has shaped us from an early on stage as a kid to very literal stage as a young person, to this person who is externally driven by those around them who have an understanding of the Bible, to now someone who is individually engaging the Bible, maybe in new ways that are a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe they've been disrupted and they've deconstructed and they are disoriented. And so now they're engaging the Bible with a new set of lenses. The next stage, the fifth stage, is a little bit harder to talk about because the further out we get, the more ambiguous and the more generalized things become. And it's called the conjunctive stage. And I would like just to call it the generous stage where we recognize that there's paradox, that we recognize that there's some mystery going on here. We recognize that we don't have all the answers that sometimes are maybe cliche or easier ways of understanding things. Even our theology doesn't always do the bigness of God or the majesty of God or the love of God or the generosity and mercy of God doesn't do it justice just to put it into words that sometimes the words fall short and it's more of an experience of kindness that reminds us of who God is. It's a it's a way of existing in the world where we try to we try to just appreciate these values of like love and joy and peace. I think the fruit of the spirit is really a stage five idea where we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are things that we we could believe in and put on a checklist, but really, how do you check off self-control? It's something that you have to do every day. How do you check off loving? It's not something that you did once upon a time. It's something that you have to do all the time. These ideas, these concepts, the fruit of the Spirit are just things that we 
are appreciative of. And we also start to be generous or hospitable to them when we see them in other spaces that we maybe didn't expect to see. So we go to another country, we engage someone from a different faith, and we see the love and the generosity, we see the kindness and the goodness, and we can't help but be appreciative of it. We can't help but compliment it. And that can be a really healthy thing for building bridges and, and building a type of community where, where we can actually love our neighbor in a really impactful way. So that's a little bit of faith development theory based on James Fowler. I hope to, in the future, maybe go through this a little slower, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of faith development theory so that we can have that inform how we engage the Bible. So remember, the Bible is dynamic and wonderful and beautiful, and at every stage of our life, it can speak to us. At every stage of our life, it can impact us. Therefore, we should always be remaining open and curious to what God is up to because the Spirit is ever-present and moving in our midst, and it's enlightening the Bible and helping us understand it in deeper and deeper ways. Thanks for joining me on Deconstructing the Bible.